Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, March 23rd, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. At least 13 are killed in an earthquake in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India. Uganda passes a bill criminalizing identifying as LGBTQ+. At least four are killed in a Russian drone attack on the Kyiv region. Israel allegedly strikes Syria's Aleppo airport again. U.S. home prices fall for the first time in 11 years. Beijing's population falls for the first time since 2003. A U.S. court rules against an ex-Haitian mayor for $15 million. Google launches its chat GBT rival, Bard, in the U.S. and U.K. A deadly fungus sweeps across the U.S. And the U.N. warns against vampiric global water use. In our top story, disturbing news coming from the Middle East, as at least 13 are killed after a powerful earthquake shakes Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Al Jazeera, Reuters, and Guardian. On Tuesday night, a 6.5 magnitude earthquake struck the Hindu Kush region near the remote northern Afghan province of Badakhshan, killing four people and injuring over 70. The quake also claimed nine lives in northwest Pakistan, where it also caused landslides, damaged buildings, and left over 200 injured, forcing hospitals in the region to declare a state of emergency. Pakistan's meteorological department put the magnitude slightly higher at 6.8 and later reported the occurrence of a 3.7 magnitude aftershock along the border with Afghanistan. According to the United States Geological Survey, the earthquake happened about 194 kilometers below the Earth's surface, explaining why shaking was felt as far as India, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Turkmenistan. Authorities in Afghanistan fear the number of fatalities may climb, as some of mountainous Badakhshan's remote villages can be difficult to reach, as many residents do not have access to phones or internet, so reports of fatalities in those areas may be delayed. This news comes less than a year after a 5.9 magnitude earthquake hit eastern Afghanistan, claiming more than 1,000 lives. Thank you, Eric. On the Improve the News podcast, we like to separate the facts from the narrative spin. You just heard Eric explain the facts of that story. I'm going to start off our spins with a narrative A provided by the Daily O. Afghanistan has a long history of earthquakes, many of which occur in the mountainous Hindu Kush region that borders Pakistan. Afghanistan and the larger part of South Asia along the Hindu Kush mountains are seismically active because two tectonic plates, known as the Indian and Eurasian plates, are pushing against each other. Not much can be done to protect the country and its neighbors from this unfortunate geographical feature which puts the lives of those living in the area at risk. Narrative B is coming from Green Matters. People don't usually associate earthquakes with climate change, but they are intimately connected. Scientists are warning that the impacts of global warming could make earthquakes more damaging and deadly. The climate crisis may not directly cause earthquakes, but it has caused more extreme weather over the years. And it's this intensity that puts stress on fault lines. By doing more about climate change, it is possible that this aggravating factor of the severity of quakes could be tempered in the future. And from time to time, we get a statistics-based nerd narrative provided by our friends at the Metaculous Prediction Community. Here's one that says there's a 50% chance 
that at least 83,000 will die as a result of the most deadly earthquake between 2020 and 2029. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. Uganda passes sweeping LGBTQ plus bans. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CNN, New York Times, BBC News, NDTV.com, and Vox. Uganda's parliament on Tuesday passed a bill that criminalizes identifying as LGBTQ plus and proposes punishments for homosexual relationships. The bill, which now goes to President Yauri Museveni to be signed into law, would see anyone openly identifying as gay, lesbian, transgender, or queer face up to 20 years in prison. Same-sex intercourse is already unlawful in the country and punishable by life in prison. Under the new legislation, the death penalty can be invoked for people convicted of aggravated homosexuality, defined in the bill as homosexual acts involving minors, people with disabilities, HIV-infected persons, or same-sex offenses committed without consent or under duress. Individuals or institutions that support or fund LGBTQ plus rights activities or organizations, as well as journalists who publish, broadcast, and distribute content advocating homosexuality, also face prosecution and imprisonment. The lawmakers assert that the law, known as the Anti-Homosexuality Bill 2023, aims to protect the legal, religious, and traditional family values of Ugandans from the acts that are likely to promote sexual promiscuity in the country. In 2009, the conservative East African nation introduced a similar bill that proposed the death penalty for same-sex relationships. In 2014, a bill was signed into law replacing the death penalty clause with life in prison. However, Uganda's constitutional court declared it null and void six months later. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. We've got a couple of spins, and the first one is a pro-establishment narrative coming from HRW. The draconian legislation promotes hatred and homophobia and seeks to strip LGBTQ plus individuals of their fundamental rights, including freedom of expression, privacy, and equality guaranteed under international human rights instruments, to which Uganda is a party. The government must protect all people from violence and discrimination, regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity. To criminalize people simply for being who they are is morally repugnant. There's also an establishment critical narrative provided by Twitter. The West is quick to condemn anything that goes against their cultural imperialism but fails to realize that this bill is the direct result of their meddling. Shadowy international forces continue to promote and impose their morals on Africans, who have been forced to respond in kind. It's essential to protect Uganda's traditional family values, diverse culture, and the future of its children, even in the face of the West's financial blackmail. The Metaculous Prediction community is giving us a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 50% chance that 17.1% of the world's population will live in countries where same-sex marriage is legal in 2025. What about those countries where people identify as a thermos? They've been spending years in prison. I figured. Years years in prison. Years in prison. Mm -hmm. Like since World War I. Ah, yeah. There's there's generations of thermos-identifying people in prison, known as the Coleman Crusade, (laughs) I think. That's what they call that. 
at least four are killed in a Russian drone attack on the Kyiv region. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Ukraine Forum, Ukraine's Kapravda, and Guardian. A day after Ukraine launched a drone attack on Crimea, at least four civilians were killed and seven more were injured after Russia launched a drone attack on the city of Rishchev in the wider Kyiv region in the early hours of Wednesday. Ukrainian officials also said four civilians were killed and five more were injured in Russian attacks on the Donetsk region in the past day. A missile attack was also reported in Odessa, causing an unspecified number of injuries, as well as in the region of Khmelnytsky, though officials said missile defenses had repelled the attack there. Russian attacks were also recorded in the regions of Kherson and Zaporizhia on Wednesday. Meanwhile, Chinese leader Xi Jinping concluded his state visit to Russia on Wednesday morning. Before his departure, he held a press conference with Russian President Putin in which Putin welcomed China's proposals for a peace plan for the war in Ukraine, stating, It correlates to the point of view of the Russian Federation. The plan calls for dialogue, respect for all countries' territorial sovereignty, an end to economic sanctions, as well as avoiding nuclear escalation but did not suggest that Russia would withdraw its forces from the country. However, U.S. officials again cast doubt on the proposals. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said, The world should not be fooled by any tactical move by Russia, supported by China or any other country, to freeze the war on its own terms. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said, I don't think you can reasonably look at China as impartial in any way. In the press conference with Xi, Putin also hit out at a British statement that said they would provide Ukraine with tank shells made with depleted uranium as part of a package sending Challenger 2 tanks. Depleted uranium makes shells denser, hence more adept at piercing tank armor, but has been linked with a host of health problems for both soldiers and the civilian populations where such shells are used. All right, thank you, Eric. We have an anti-Russia narrative spin provided by Sky News. Russia and Putin are spreading disinformation about depleted uranium shells. These are standard components in modern militaries and have nothing to do with nuclear weapons or capabilities. The health risks associated with these weapons are low. TASS gives us a pro-Russian narrative for this story. The UK plan to ship depleted uranium shells risks an escalation of the conflict. These shells have well-documented health repercussions for the local population and Russia will have to recalculate its approach accordingly. The UK is urged to reconsider its decision. And the folks at Metaculus have a nerd narrative on this story. They say there's a 20% chance that Russia will use at least one nuclear weapon on Kyiv before 2024. I find that the depleted uranium I keep in my kitchen cabinets is very effective when I make stews, stews and broths. Oh, I, I use it as paperweights on my desk. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's got all kinds of uh, uses. Kind of like a cross between a slinky and silly putty. <laughs> Israel allegedly strikes Syria's Aleppo airport again. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Voice of America, Haaretz.com, Al Jazeera, and Reuters. The Syrian Defense Ministry said Wednesday that Israel launched an air attack on Aleppo International Airport at around 3.55 a.m. local time, causing some material damage in reportedly the second strike this month. The UK-based war monitor Syrian Observatory for Human Rights reported that the attack was aimed at a weapons and ammunition warehouse, which two Israeli intelligence sources claimed is associated with a Nair Rab military airport suspected of housing equipment delivered by Iran. 
Israel has, in recent years, carried out hundreds of attacks against what it says are Iran-linked targets in Syria, where Tehran's influence has grown since it began supporting President Bashar al-Assad in the civil war beginning in 2011. Wednesday's missile strike was the third such attack on Aleppo airport in six months. According to three unnamed Western intelligence sources, Iran has increased the use of Narab Airport in recent weeks to deliver more arms amid heavy air traffic as cargo planes offload relief aid following February's deadly earthquake. Damascus, however, denies that Tehran has a substantial military presence in the country and says the recent strikes on the airport have interfered with aid delivery to quake victims. Earlier this month, Syrian state media reported that an Israeli air raid on Aleppo Airport had damaged a runway taking it out of service. Relief supplies were rerouted to Damascus and Latakia. All right, those were the facts. As we look at the spin, the first one is an establishment critical narrative coming from foreign affairs. Israel has been carrying out airstrikes against suspected Iranian weapons transfers and personnel and its proxies in Syria for almost a decade. Though the strikes are part of a low-intensity conflict to slow Iran's growing entrenchment in Syria, the West has seemingly dropped its previous plan of diplomacy to allow Israel and other allies to, instead, use military force to settle its grievances with Tehran, a risky strategy that underestimates the magnitude and repercussions of a military escalation. That's followed up with a pro-establishment narrative provided by Times of Israel. Syria is in a conflict zone with many actors, all of which can cause this shadow of war to go hot, and Iran with its coordinated effort with Russia, which controls much of the Syrian airspace, risks pushing it over the edge. Israel has been clear that it will not permit Iran to freely move weapons and fighters through Syria if such activities threaten Israeli security, and is right to target Iranian assets in any of the countries into which Tehran has dug its tentacles. And the Metaculous Prediction community is giving us a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 15% chance that a state-based conflict between Israel and Iran will cause at least 1,000 deaths before 2025. Turning our attention back to the United States as U.S. home prices fell in February 2023. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, Reuters, Business Insider, and Forbes. U.S. home prices fell year over year for the first time in more than 10 years in February 2023. The National Association of Realtors reported Tuesday. The median existing home price decreased by 0.2% to $363,000. The association also reported that lower prices, in addition to lower mortgage rates from mid-November 2022 to this February, led to the largest jump in the sale of previously owned homes in two and a half years, ending a 12-month streak of declines. Existing home sales jumped 14.5% last month from January, bringing the annual rate to 4.58 million, the largest increase since July of 2020. Rates on 30-year mortgages eased to 6.6%, down from a high of 7% for much of the past year. The Federal Reserve is expected to increase rates by just 25 basis points, as opposed to an earlier estimate of 50 points in its next policy meeting. The Fed's multiple rounds of interest rate hikes, which were at record lows during the first two years of the COVID pandemic, started last year in an attempt to cool inflation. That led home sales to drop by more than 35% between November 2021 and November 2022. Thank you, Eric. We've got a couple of narrative spins on this story. Narrative A, provided by CNN. The housing market is coming back. 
thanks to buyers who are conscious of changing mortgage rates and taking advantage of even the slightest dip, even as the spring buying season is just beginning. Prices could become even more affordable moving forward, but the lack of inventory means it's still a good time to sell a home. Everybody's winning in this recovery. Narrative B is coming from the Wall Street Journal. Don't uncork the champagne yet. This data was computed before Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank's collapses, which are causing unrest throughout the banking sector. There should be less consumer demand and tightened lending standards from banks for a while now. And there's also a chance the Fed will do another major rate hike. The housing market, like the economy as a whole, is too unstable to celebrate. Beijing's population falls for the first time since 2003. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, Yahoo News, NDTV.com, and Guardian. Official data released on Tuesday revealed that China's capital Beijing experienced its first population decline since 2003, as the city's death rate surpassed its birth rate in 2022. Beijing remains one of the country's most populous urban centers with almost 22 million people, but its death rate rose to 5.72 deaths per 1,000 people, while its birth rate fell to 5.67 births per 1,000 people. The population decline was in line with China's national trend, as the country saw its first national population decline in six decades last year. Several factors attributed to the decline are rising costs of living, weak economic growth, and changing attitudes towards raising a family. Official data last year showed China's birth rate had fallen to 6.77 births per 1,000 people, the lowest on record. Officials have reportedly been encouraging families to have more than one child, a reversal from China's decades-long one-child policy, which was abolished in 2016. Thank you for the facts of that story, Adam. The first spin is an anti-China narrative coming from Noma. China is in the throes of demographic and economic crises of its own making. After its brutal and failed one-child policy, China is trying to reverse startling trends of population decline. But it cannot reverse this unavoidable demographic disaster. China is at risk of losing its economic power as its labor-age population dwindles. And there's no quick fix for this problem. And that anti-China narrative is followed up with a pro-China narrative provided by East Asian Forum. Some are all too eager to count on China's economic demise amid decreasing birth rates, but China's modernization efforts were built to withstand a shrinking population and maintain a strong economy into the future. In the short term, China will not feel the effects of its aging population, and it's already on the path to developing long-term solutions to modernize and strengthen its population and economy. And there's a nerd narrative for this story coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. It says there's a 50% chance that China's fertility rate will be at least 1.25 births per woman in 2031. Well, what about the men? I mean, how many births per men? Oh, that's uh, that number is probably a little lower, I would guess. <laughs> I don't get how they're having one and a quarter babies per woman. Right. And some of those partial births from the, from the story, 5.67 births. I mean, there's just going to be random arms and legs. Maybe it all balances out. It all balances out in the end. Yeah, you know, probably like, does. All the all the bits of babies yeah. part balance. <laughs> it's like Mr. Potato Head. Good grief! All these body parts floating around. In our next story, a U.S. court rules against an ex Haitian mayor for fifteen million dollars. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Associated Press, California News, Washington Post, and WBUR News. 
A U.S. District Court in Boston, Massachusetts, ruled on Tuesday that former Haitian Mayor Jean Moros Villina must pay more than $15.5 million in damages for waging a campaign against political opponents that included a killing, attempted murder, and torture. The jury ruled in favor of a 2017 civil lawsuit filed against Villena by David Boniface, Judas Zisemme, and Nisaj Martyr, alleging that he and his political allies were persecuting them or their relatives. Martyr died after the filing and was replaced by his son, Nisandire Martyr, as a plaintiff. The former mayor of the small Haitian town of Le Iroy was accused of leading a group of armed men who shot Boniface's younger brother in his absence in 2007 as part of a political persecution campaign and assaulted Isime and Nisaj Martyr in 2008, causing Isime to go blind in one eye and Martyr to lose a leg. Villena, a candidate for the Haitian Democracy and Reform Movement, was also sued for allegedly orchestrating the 2009 burning of dozens of homes of his political opponents, but the jury acquitted him of arson charges. Prior to the verdict, Villena's lawyer had questioned the witness's credibility, denying that his client was responsible for any acts of violence and that Villena had worked to improve services such as better infrastructure and access to health care during his tenure. Villena, who is a legal U.S. resident living in Malden, Massachusetts, was sued under the 1991 Torture Victim Protection Act, which allows civil suits to be filed in the U.S. against foreign officials accused of committing crimes in their home country, when all domestic legal options have been explored. Thank you, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative provided by The Guardian. The ruling is both a relief to the plaintiffs and a sobering reminder of the lawlessness that has long prevailed in Haiti, with its notoriously weak and dysfunctional rule of law. Add to this the rampant gang violence with hundreds of deaths this year alone, which has further exacerbated an already dire humanitarian crisis. It's time for the international community to intervene to protect Haiti from itself. An establishment critical narrative comes from Liberation News. While the ruling is a stark reminder of the lawlessness that prevails in Haiti, the fact that the Caribbean island has never had a real chance to develop as a sovereign nation since the 1804 revolution is readily ignored. It is the West that has always interfered in Haiti's internal affairs and destabilized the country in order to determine its fate. Only as a truly independent nation will Haiti be able to protect its own citizens. Google launches its AI chatbot Bard in the U.S. and U.K. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, Guardian, TechCrunch, and New York Post. On Tuesday... Google announced that its artificial intelligence chatbot, Bard, will be available to the public on a rolling basis in the U.S. and U.K. The company, which has been developing Bard for years, said it's still an early experiment. Bard can give creative responses to detailed questions in English and engage in back-and-forth conversations. Examples have included helping plan a birthday party and a vacation with children to Tokyo. Bard was designed by Google's Lambda language model and the company says it would work particularly well with Nora queries, one to which there's no one right answer. Google has opened a public waitlist, similar to what rival Microsoft did when implementing ChatGPT technology into its Bing search engine last month. After previously only allowing a hand-picked small group of trusted testers to access BARD, Google has been a forerunner in AI, having invented the transformer technology in 2017, which became the T in ChatGPT. However, it postponed its public release of BARD reportedly over concerns about company profitability and other internal company dysfunction. 
Thank you for the facts, Adam. The Guardian gives us narrative A for this story. Google might be rushing out Bard too soon because of pressure from its competitors. It was already walking a fine line, hoping it doesn't lose users of its profitable search engine to the AI bot. Now it also has to worry about a misinformation problem that could tarnish the company's reputation. Google might regret not waiting for Bard to be near perfect while the other companies struggle through their AI rollouts. And a narrative B provided by The Verge. Google may as well get out in front of the AI race because it has something the other companies don't, a leading search engine that can be a backup for mistakes Bard makes or information it can't find. For now, Bard is a complement to search. But as it works out the kinks, Google may have just started the future of search. Oh, they put the T in chat GBT, and they also put the fun in dysfunction. Woohoo! News coming from the CDC as a deadly fungus is spreading at an alarming rate. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, Associated Press, CNBC, and NPR Online News. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, has called the fungus Candida auris an urgent threat after a new study showed it had been spreading at an alarming rate through healthcare facilities. According to the study, U.S. cases of the fungus more than tripled over just three years. Researchers say that the pandemic likely drove an increase in cases, as health workers already swamped with COVID likely shifted their focus away from disinfecting other types of germs. Healthy people aren't at risk from Candida auris, but those with weak immune systems, diabetes, who take a lot of antibiotics, or who use medical devices like ventilators, feeding tubes, or catheters face a higher risk of suffering severe illness or dying. CDC epidemiologist Dr. Megan Lyman has called the quick rise in cases concerning, saying it emphasizes the need for continued surveillance, expanded lab capacity, quicker diagnostic tests, and adherence to proven infection prevention and control. The fungus is dangerous because it's often resistant to the antifungal medications used to treat infections. Experts say that it's also difficult to identify without specialized laboratory technology and is frequently mistaken for other pathogens. The fungus was first identified in Asia in 2009, with the first case in the U.S. occurring in 2013. Researchers say the number of cases in the U.S. grew sharply between 2020 and 2021. Eric, there's a couple of narrative spins on this story. Narrative A is provided by BBC. The rise in cases of Candida auris fungus is extremely alarming. While dealing with one public health crisis, medical workers failed to prevent another. There is a reason why infection protocols exist and must be strictly adhered to regardless of wider developments in public health, even the emergence of pandemics. Narrative B comes from ABC News. While news of a new dangerous fungus sounds very worrying, the majority of people need not be concerned about Candida auris. Although medical professionals should be aware about the potential for infection and need to effectively diagnose this fungus, the CDC doesn't need to panic the majority in the U.S. who won't be affected by this development. You know, and it also seems like uh, China is developing kind of a weird reputation. It seems like the only thing that comes out of China now are viruses, funguses, and, and red balloons. balloons. Yeah, yeah. I think they, if they can combine it all together, they can be a little more efficient. <laughs> the UN warns against vampiric global water use. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, UN News, Fizz.org, and France 24. Ahead of the first global water summit since 1977, a UN report released Monday says that the world is blindly traveling a dangerous path, 
of vampiric overconsumption and overdevelopment. According to the report, 2 billion people worldwide lack access to safe drinking water, and 3.6 billion don't have access to proper sanitation. Lead author of the report, Richard Connor, said that up to 3.5 billion people live under conditions of water stress at least one month a year, and uncertainties are increasing. The report added that not accounting for pollution from pharmaceuticals, chemicals, pesticides, microplastics, and nanomaterials, at least 2 billion people globally use a drinking water source contaminated with feces, putting them at risk of contracting cholera, dysentery, typhoid, and polio. Co-hosted by Tajikistan and the Netherlands, the UN Water Conference will include around 6,500 participants, including 10 ministers, a dozen heads of state, and private sector actors to propose a water action agenda. The conference will take place in New York City this week. All right, those were the facts, and the first spin of this story is a pro-establishment narrative coming from UN Global Compact. This global crisis hurts areas with both too much and too little water. In countries like the U.S., where water is abundant, flooding causes catastrophic infrastructure and economic damage. In other countries, a lack of clean water causes health risks on an endemic scale. As water is difficult to ship from abundant regions to water-scarce regions, the global community must come together in sharing existing analytical data to develop programs to reverse scarcity and slow overuse. And an establishment critical narrative provided by The Conversation. Governments and NGOs have understood the dangers of unsustainable living since the 1950s, but despite the countless UN summits and White House conferences, these so-called leaders and experts have remained under the thumb of the big businesses that own them. The clock is ticking for many environmental issues, but the UN is unlikely to reverse course and implement the global action plan it's been promising for over half a century. Narrative C is coming from Harper's. Talk of an impending global water crisis mirrors talk of an impending climate catastrophe. There is an incredible disappearing doomsday effect. All too often, science remains the same, but the interpretation of data and public discourse walks a tightrope between apocalypse and hope. The truth is nuanced, and somewhere in the middle, doomsday scenarios simply haven't materialized. And the nerds of Metaculus are going to wrap up today's podcast with a prediction they say there's a 50% chance that humans will be able to capture water from volatile sources in the inner solar system by September 2050. September? I got plans, September. I do, too. I've got a lot of stuff going on in, in October and, and September of that year. Yeah, my 2050 is busy, 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 busy. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, March 23rd, 2023. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.